and for reading God's Word. You can have a seat. Uh, it is good to see all of you. Um, I want to want to begin by mentioning a few things. Um, <clears throat> we have been served well as a church uh, by Matt Brooks, uh, who is the worship leader at Grace Church here in Ann Arbor, uh, who's been willing to, to help us over these past two months. And I just want to want to say a thanks uh, to Matt and as our church family, if you would just join me in thanking him um, <clears throat> for how he served us and uh, and and as we continue to to look for um, a, a worship director to step into that role, I'm grateful for his encouragement and just blessing us with. Uh, not only his gifts, uh, but uh, his leadership and his presence each week. He is going to be transitioning at the end of this month back home uh, for him, which is to California with he and his family, um, uh, going uh, to a new position there, continuing to serve the church. And uh, though we are going to miss him here, and I know Grace uh, will miss him there, uh, we're excited for what God has in store and uh, just uh, grateful for you, Matt, and I uh, want you to, to know that. <clears throat> um, we also, uh, not every... Sunday that we're in the presence of a national champion. Uh, she doesn't know I'm going to say this, but Taylor Greer uh, representing the cheer team from the University of Michigan. Back-to-back <laughs> -back, uh, championships. Uh, so uh, proud of you, excited uh, for you, and we're celebrating with you and thankful uh, for you being here. And uh, just uh, I couldn't be uh, more more happy and more proud and know the work that went into that and uh, the journey uh, that this year has been. Uh, and uh, rejoicing uh, with you in that. And so uh, just uh, uh, want to wanna say thanks uh, again for, for you being here. As Chris said, we, we recognize uh, the dynamic that's taking place in our community as the, the numbers go back up and uh, hospital capacity gets more full. Uh, and uh, as Pastor Chris said, we, uh, we are paying careful attention, uh, seeking to be uh, wise in our gathering with the same protocols that we've been following that God has graciously um, protected us uh, from any spread within our church, but, but also just recognize uh, the weight that that puts on our community. And we want to be uh, leading in that wisely. Uh, and uh, so thank you for, for being here and, and just want to continue to encourage you uh, to be wise, uh, to be careful, get vaccinated if you can, uh, and, uh, and, and look out for one another uh, in this process. So uh, today we are going to be in the book of Joel. Uh, if, uh, if you have a Bible, open up to the book of Joel. It's towards the end of the New Testament, right after Hosea. We're continuing our series in the minor prophets. Uh, if you remember, they're minor, not because they're insignificant, but because they're shorter. Uh, than the, the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And uh, Hosea was actually a little bit of a misnomer because it's kind of long, but Joel fits the bill. It's only three chapters. Uh, and, <clears throat> and one of the things that we see throughout the prophets is that they're God's messengers to His people. Uh, and, and the prophets are coming and reminding Israel uh, of the old of the, of the covenants that God had made with His people, covenants that came uh, with uh, with certain blessings uh, for Israel when they obeyed and certain curses or consequences when they disobeyed. And, and so what God would do would He would send His messengers to His people, warning them, calling them to repentance for their backsliding into sin, their rejecting God, their worshiping false gods and, and running after and trusting in the nations around them and the things um, that they could make with their hands. And, and God was uh, faithfully, graciously calling His people to repentance. And as they found themselves at times in the darkness of judgment and of discipline and of exile, 
God's messengers were always a reminder that there in their darkness, God speaks. And the message that God speaks is one of hope that if we turn back to Him, He will receive us. Uh, and, and so as we, as we go through, uh, these prophets, we see this continual theme. There's somewhat of a, uh, of a, a kind of a pattern. It doesn't follow it to a T in every book, but we see, uh, God's prophets calling Israel, uh, to the carpet, uh, calling out their sin, calling them to repentance, re- promising God's restoration for those who turn back to the Lord. And we see that time and time again in the prophets. And we're going to see it in the book of Joel today. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to do a little bit of an overview of Joel. Um, and then I want to pull out three points uh, that help us to understand the book as a whole. Um, but before I do, I, I want to kind of bring this to, to real life for us. <clears throat> Have you ever wanted to be with someone so bad, but got rejected? Maybe it was a relationship. Um, maybe Maybe it was a friendship. Maybe you uh, you you wanted to be friends with someone or be in a particular group uh, so bad, but but you were rejected. Uh, it's a painful experience. I remember uh, plenty of times in my childhood. I've shared uh, this story with you before. I remember as a seventh grader, um, I, I I had a girlfriend. She was in ninth grade. I thought I was pretty cool. Um, we passed notes uh, as we swapped buses, uh, and one day she passed me the fatal note. Uh, it was a roses are red, violets are blue kind of poem. It said roses are red, violets are blue, but baby, we're through. Rejected. Um, and uh, I, I didn't know what to say. Uh, I'd like to think myself somewhat of a poet, um, but I didn't have any poem to return at that point. Just utter devastation. Um, and I'm grateful for God's uh, wisdom and uh, uh, protecting me from that relationship uh, and bringing me uh, into the one with my wife that uh, I've now enjoyed for 10 years. But uh, I've faced rejection on that front, but also with friends. I, you know, I remember as a, as a kid having a friend that you wanted to play with and, and getting that rejection of, no, they can't play. But what's worse is when they can't play, uh, but they play with somebody else instead. They don't want to play with you, but they're playing with someone else. Uh, you're like, Michael, I'm, I'm like beyond the kid years. Um, uh, some of the kids in here may relate to those, uh, those fears of rejection. Uh, but I think most of us spend our adult life trying to avoid the fears of our childhood, primarily rejection. Uh, we do whatever we can to avoid rejection. Um, and, and there's this, this deeply isolating and lonely experience that comes when you're rejected. And it's a very real human experience that points to a spiritual truth. And the reality is, when we look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is that we were made to be with God. But here's the thing. We were made to be with God, but it wasn't God who rejected us. It was us who rejected God. We were made to be with God, but sin separates us from God's presence. That's Genesis 1-2. through And the rest of the Bible is how God is pursuing us, seeking to bring us back into His presence to enjoy being with Him and Him being with us. And that's... The, the message of Joel is a, a message of hope regarding God's presence. That God promises if His people will return to Him, He will be with them. So look at Joel 1, just to, to give a little bit of an overview. Joel 1, 1 introduces us to Joel. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. <clears throat> now, 
the first thing you'll notice if you've been kind of tracking along uh, with uh, reading through the prophets, maybe you looked at Hosea last week or maybe you've looked ahead at some of the other prophets. Typically, in an introduction to a prophet, it tells you not only who the prophet is, but usually something about their circumstances, how they prophesied during the reign of a particular king or, or during some circumstances. Uh, but we don't get any of that in the book of Joel. Uh, and in fact, the minor prophets, uh, if, if you kind of think of it this way, the minor prophets span from uh, around the 8th century before Israel was taken into the Assyrian exile. Remember, there are two dates that we need to remember in the prophets. 722 is the Assyrian exile. That's the northern part uh, of the divided kingdom of Israel. It went by the name Israel. It gets a little confusing, I know. But the northern part, which is called Israel, uh, they go into exile into Assyria. 586 BC is the southern part, Judah. They go into exile into Babylon. And all of the prophets either are before that exile after the Assyrian exile or before the Babylonian exile or, or after the Babylonian exile. Um, and, and Hosea, uh, is, is before, it's at the very front end before Israel, the northern kingdom goes into exile to Assyria. And Joel doesn't give us any of those details. Uh, and, and the rest of the minor prophets don't follow a particular order. Uh, and, and so biblical scholars debate of whether or not Joel is uh, before the Assyrian exile, like early on, or if it's after the Babylonian exile. And the reason we say that is there's no king mentioned, and the temple is mentioned, and sacrifices are mentioned, uh, but without there being any king, it's unclear. Uh, so it clearly would have to be after the Babylonian exile or uh, before the Assyrian exile. But the point that I think will become clear as we read throughout Joel is <clears throat> Joel is particularly a message that's telling us something about God and God's pursuit of us uh, and God's desire to make His presence known to us. I think Joel uh, is most likely <clears throat> on the, the back end of the Babylonian exile, uh, the, uh, kind of the opposite end of Hosea. Joel is on the other end after the Babylonian exile. The Israel has come back into the Promised Land after they were in Babylon, Cyrus, the king of Persia sends them back. You remember Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, they rebuild the temple wall. They rebuild the temple. The sacrifices are made again. Uh, but, but God's people uh, are still longing for God to show up. When the temple uh, was, was, the foundation was laid, if you read in Ezra, uh, the, the people wept uh, as, as the temple foundation was laid. And most would say it's not because they were so overcome with joy that the temple was being rebuilt, but it was because something was missing. God's presence wasn't there in the same way that it had been before the exile. And so Joel is writing during this time, and we're going to see that, that there's, a, um, there's really a, an experience that's taken place, an invasion of locusts that's just brought desolation and destruction to the land. Now, when I read this, it's kind of one of those things. Sometimes you read stuff in the Bible, you're like, did that really happen? You know, like, could that really happen? Um, if you, if you want to Google, I got kind of sidetracked on history, uh, while I was doing this. If you want to Google the, the locust invasion in Kansas of 1874, uh, and get yourself a history lesson of how this took place, it's wild, uh, what took place. 
Basically, these grasshoppers, which there's a kind of a life cycle uh, as they grow up, they get wings and uh, usually due to circumstances and the environment and the atmosphere, uh, they will kind of gather together and, and basically they form a swarm. And when they form a swarm, they eat everything that's green in their path. Look at what, what it says um, in verse uh, verse four. He's calling, starting in verses two and three, he's, he's recalling uh, saying to the elders and, and to everyone, have you ever seen anything like this? And in all the generations, we've not seen something like this. He says in verse 4, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Translation, locust, 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 lots of locusts, and they have destroyed everything in the land. It is brought to utter desolation. The drunkards don't even have wine to drink because the fruit on the vine is eaten up. The nation has uh, come up against my land. Verse 6, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. Its fangs are lionesses. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it down. And their branches are made white. All the destruction that has come. Joel is reflecting and calling upon Israel to reflect on. And he's saying that this terrible destruction that has come is not just a a terrible national calamity, but it's God getting our attention. He says in in verse 13, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. He he calls the people to a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land to the houses of the Lord your God and to cry out to the Lord God. Here it is. Alas, for the day of the Lord is near and destruction from the Almighty comes. He's saying that what's taking place is reminding us that the day of the Lord is coming. That there's going to be a, there's going to come a day when God's judgment is going to come and the destruction that we have seen and tasted and this national calamity will be nothing in comparison to what God will do. In chapter two, uh, he goes on and, and, and continues to talk about what's taking place. Some, some will either say that this is reiterating, uh, what what he was talking about in verse 1 regarding this locust plague, but using the imagery of an army, or it's referencing some other uh, circumstance that's to come when uh, when, a, when an army comes against Israel. Because now listen to the language uh, it uses. Below a trumpet in Zion, chapter 2, verse 1, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Here it is again. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness like blackness that spread upon the mountains and a great and powerful people like has never been seen before, nor will be again after them through all the years of all the generations. See how it kind of reflects what we saw in chapter one, verses two through three, saying from generation to generation, we've never seen this. Fires devour before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before they come, but behind them, it's a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. And their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run. And he talks about their chariots and how they're, they're coming, devouring a powerful army, verse 5, drawn up for battle. And he comes to the conclusion of all of this as he talks about these, um, these experiences that Israel uh, is facing. 
He says in verse 11, The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? What he's laying out is a warning of judgment to Israel. He's pointing to real experiences that Israel uh, has, uh, has experienced that they're going through or are about to go through. And he's saying all of this is pointing and warning you that the day of judgment is coming. And he's calling upon Israel to repent. He says, we see this in verses 13 uh, through, through 20 in chapter 1, and then again in chapter 2 through chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. This call to repentance. He warns them of the judgment that's to come, and he says, in the face of God's coming judgment, the, the great and awesome day of the Lord, what should you do? Should you build bigger houses to protect yourself? Should you store up extra grain so the next time the locusts come, you'll have enough food? Should you, uh, should you train more warriors to be ready for the battle? No, he says, what we must do in the face of God's coming judgment, verse 12, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Twice we see this call to repentance. And it shows us in the face of God's coming judgment, God calls His people to turn back to Him. In Joel, we don't see any of Israel's sins particularly mentioned. Somewhat different than what we saw in Hosea as Hosea talked about the idolatry of the people of Israel, how they chased after uh, the gods of the nations around them, and, and how they gave themselves to, to greed and immorality and, and to violence. It doesn't say any of that here. There's no sin that Joel is particularly calling out. And I think the point is, on one hand, you could say perhaps Israel knows their sin and they just need to be exhorted to acknowledge it. That could certainly be true. But I think the greater point is that God has something to tell us about Himself. And, and we, we heard it in the passage that Mason read, starting in verse 18. Apparently, Israel responds to the call to repentance. And God responds to Israel through the prophet Joel. And He says, "...the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people." The Lord answered and said to His people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain and wine and oil. You will be satisfied, and I will make no longer make you a reproach among the nations. I'll remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. God's saying, I'm coming to, to destroy what's come against you. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, verse 21, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beast of the fields, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The trees bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. God's saying, I'm undoing what, what my judgment, what my discipline came against you. All of it's being turned over and there's no, there's no perhaps richer truth in which we see this than in verse 25 when He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. 
the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. So God promises this coming restoration and salvation to His people. And in fact, He's going to, he's going to say, He's going to, to kind of talk about this discipline and judgment that Israel is experiencing in the present time. And He's going to point forward to the end of time. In chapter 3, what we see is that God's going to judge the nations. A day is coming when God will judge all those who reject Him and will redeem and restore all those who trust in Him. But before the, the great judgment of God at the end, Joel says that God is going to do a work that will be described as the outpouring of His Spirit upon people. An outpouring of His Spirit upon people before the great and final day of the Lord. It says in verse 28, It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out My Spirit on you, on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even the male and female servants in those days I will pour out My Spirit. And here it is, there's that pouring out of the Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this outpouring of the Spirit precedes this final day of judgment. In chapter 3, what we see is that that final day of judgment, the judgment of the nations, and the day of the Lord, we see in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, in those days, at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's not an actual place. Jehoshaphat means that God will judge. That's what it means. There's a king by that name, but it means that God will judge. So God is going to bring all people to the valley of judgment. And there I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations. Here's another reason that I think Joel is most likely after the exile. He's talking about how Israel has been scattered among the nations and God is going to bring them back together. <clears throat> and he begins to pronounce woe and condemnation upon the nations who have come against God's people, who have rejected God. He says in verse 11, Hasten and come of chapter 3, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourself here. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Like a harvest, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. God and tread, for the wine presses, wine presses full, the vats overflow. This is speaking of God's judgment that's about to be poured out. It says multitudes, verse 14, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Some evangelists like to talk about um, there being a valley of decision in their evangelistic crusades. That we're being called to trust in the Lord, and no doubt God calls us to a decision. But Joel 2, Joel 3 Verse 14 isn't talking about a valley where we make a decision, but it's talking about a valley where God brings people to pronounce His decision, His verdict on all those who reject Him, on all those who turn away from Him. It's a valley where God will judge. 
Look at verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. Joel says God's day of judgment is coming. All these small things, these small days of judgment are pointing forward to a future day of judgment. But in the face of that coming day of judgment, there is a refuge. Look what he says in the tail end of verse 16. But the Lord is a refuge to His people. A stronghold to the people of Israel. And on that final day when God judges the nations, God's judgment of all those who reject Him, all those who will not call upon the name of the Lord, will simultaneously be the day in which God delivers and saves all those who do call upon Him. The, the tail end of chapter 3, verses 17 through 21 says that God wants the people to know that He is the Lord their God who dwells in their midst. And Jerusalem shall be holy on that day. And all those who came against them will never again pass through it. And in that day, everything will be made new. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine. The hills shall flow with milk. And the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And fountains shall come forth from the house of the Lord. And water the valley. And Egypt shall become a desolation. And Edom a desolation, desolate wilderness for violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. And the final word is, for the Lord dwells in Zion. As you, as you hear this summary of Joel, I think it's helpful to ask this question. What does God really want us to know in Joel? And just a good, helpful tip for you when you, when you read through the Scriptures, pay attention to what's repeated. Twice we see that God wants us to know something. Look, look at this in chapter 2, verse 27. In chapter 3, verse 17, God says the same thing. That He wants us to know. Look at 3, verse 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no one else. What God wants His people to know is that He is with them, and that He would have their undivided allegiance. And then look at chapter 3, verse 17. Here the phrase is again, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion. That God is with us, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and He has secured our undivided devotion to Him. And to sum it all up, as I said in verse 21, the final word of Joel is, for the Lord dwells in Zion. What is the hope of Joel? The hope of Joel is that God's presence is coming. God desires to be with His people and will do what is necessary to enable us to enter into His presence. So in Joel, we see that those who repent and call on the name of the Lord will enjoy the blessing and the security of God's presence in the day of judgment. Those who call on the name of the Lord will enjoy the blessing and security of God's presence in the day of judgment. The story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation could be summed up, as I said earlier, as God desiring to make His presence known among His people. That He will be our God, and we will be His people. He wants to be with us, and He wants our undivided devotion. In Genesis 1, you remember when God created Adam and Eve, they would 
walk with God in the cool of the garden. They would fellowship with God. They enjoyed His presence and all of His blessings and the security of being made in His image. And what happened when they sinned? The first consequence of sin, when God shows up, we hide. We hide from His presence. We didn't want to be seen by you, Adam says. And as consequence of their sin, God sends Adam and Eve out of the presence of the garden, out of the presence of the Lord. And ever since, we've been longing to be back with God, and yet fraught with the same guilt and shame that Adam and Eve had where we hide ourselves from God, trying to run from Him. But God has the final word in Revelation 21. If you want to look in Revelation 21, verses 1-5, through 5, <clears throat> at the end of it all, as John accounts for the vision that he sees regarding the, the very end, it says in verse 1 of chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And what does God say? The God who speaks, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And in God's presence He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. From beginning to end, the story of the Bible is about God's presence being with His people. And as we look at Joel and we hear this summary and this main message that God wants His people to know, I want you to see three things. The first is that God warns us of judgment. The day of the Lord occurs five times in the book of Joel. It occurs about 15, or excuse me, occurs about 18 times total in the minor prophets. That means 25%, basically, of the times it occurs, it occurs here in the book of Joel. It's an important theme throughout the prophets, and particularly here in Joel, referring to a time when God brings judgment or deliverance. <clears throat> there will be a, a day of the Lord at the end of time that we see in chapter 3, but along the way there are many days of the Lord, if you will, in which God intervenes to judge or discipline His people or to bless and to bring uh, His, uh, His blessings. God's salvation uh, that He brings in the end will be for those who trust in Him, and the judgment that He brings will be for those who reject Him. And that's exactly what we see in the book of the Lord, in the book of Joel, in that along the way in the history of time, there will be many days of the Lord in which God intervenes to judge or bless, headed towards that final great and awesome day of the Lord in which He judges all nations. But what we see here is that God works in history, in time, to warn His people of the judgment that's to come. It's like Joel showing up saying to Israel, don't you see what's happening? Does God have your attention? All these things that have taken place, God is saying, wake up, return to me. 
I believe it's Amos next week, as Pastor Chris preaches, who'll, you know, say, I'm not the, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Um, but as we think about our own circumstances, I, I can't look at this or that circumstance and say, this is God's warning of the judgment to come. I can't look at COVID-19 and say, this is God's warning of what's to come. But what I can say is I look at the Scriptures when God does identify what's taking place among His people and He tells them to wake up, He's warning them of the judgment to come that in all of our lives, circumstances abound in which God, I believe, is using to wake us up and to say, do I have your attention? Are you paying attention to your own heart? Are you dismissing your own sin? Are you comfortable in your repetition of your religion? Are you so familiar with God that you've begun to show contempt for Him? God warns Israel of the judgment that's to come, and I believe He's using circumstances even in our own life to wake us up, to get our attention. When, when God says to Israel in, <clears throat> in chapter 2, when He calls them to repentance, in verses 15-18, through 18, He points to their circumstances. He says, return to Me. Don't you see that what's taking place is from My hand? Again, I, I, I want to be careful to, to, to make sure you understand what I'm saying. I can't say this or that is judgment. But I know that God is sovereign over everything. I know that nothing comes our way apart from coming by His hand. And that everything He brings our way, He would desire us to see His hand at work and to call us back to Him. It was C.S. Lewis who said that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but He shouts in our pains. But it's a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And whether it be personal pain or collective pain and suffering and trials and, and natural disasters and uh, cataclysmic experiences that we face, in all of them, it points to this reality that all of this is going to come to an end one day. And God has said the day of judgment is coming. Does He have our attention? Are we listening to a God who's speaking? telling us that the end is near. Our men are about to read through, uh, discuss a book tomorrow uh, called Living Backwards. And I've been reading through Ecclesiastes. It's been so helpful and sobering as you read through Ecclesiastes. It just time and time again brings you to the reality of your own death and says that the best way to live is to be ready to die. The best way to, to follow God in this world is to know that it's all coming to an end one day, that judgment is coming. And the greatest question is, are you ready? And how gracious of God to warn us of His judgment to come. That's what we see in Joel, is that God is a God who warns us of His judgment. But the purpose of His warning us of our judgment is the second point, that He pursues us to repentance. You see, when, when He says, all of this is taking place, chapter 2, verse 27, and chapter 3, verse 17, what does God desire in warning us of His judgment to come? He desires that we would return to Him. God who made us for His presence, sin has separated us from His presence, 
And God is pursuing us, calling us back to His presence if we will hear His invitation to repent, to turn from our sin and our way, and to turn to Him. God desires to be with us. And He's pursuing us, calling us to repentance. Because repentance, as we saw in Hosea, is the way home. Repentance is the way that we come back to God and to who He made us to be and what He made us for. In chapter 2, again, verses 12-13, through we see this call to repentance. Notice how it describes repentance. Repentance isn't just a formality of the Christian life. Repentance goes to the heart when he says in verse 12 of chapter 2, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And then he says in verse 13, It's not about ripping your garments and making a show for God. It's about rending your hearts. True repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of life. True repentance begins when we begin to see our sin as God sees it. We think differently about it. We don't dismiss it. We don't excuse it. We think rightly about it. And we feel the conviction that God brings that what breaks God's heart would break our hearts. We rend our hearts before God. We return to Him with all our hearts. And we actually turn away from that sin and turn to living for God. Now, we know the battle with sin. Romans 7 12 tells us that though we've turned from sin and salvation, we have to keep turning from that sin that keeps dragging us back, making us do what we don't want to do. That the Christian life doesn't just begin with repentance, but the Christian life, all of it, is repentance. That we return regularly to God, acknowledging our sin, acknowledging how our hearts go astray, acknowledging our stubbornness and our hard-heartedness and our pride. We bring that to God and we lay it before Him in true repentance. And notice what motivates our repentance. A God who pursues us to repentance is not a God whose arms are, are folded and is waiting to crush us and is, is shaming us into repentance and is scaring us into repentance. Now that's not all how God works. He quotes from Exodus 34 and He says, Return to Me because I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relent over disaster. This is a quotation from Exodus 34, verse 6. Exodus 34, verse 6 may be one of the most quoted verses in the Old Testament. So it's the most quoted Old Testament verse by the Old Testament itself. Prophets quote it regularly. Because it's how God chose to reveal Himself in the very face of Israel's rejection and idolatry. You remember back on the mountain at Sinai? When God had delivered His people Israel, He had brought them out and redeemed them and shown His mighty hand at work. And God sent Moses up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And the the people got a little distracted and a little bored and they wanted something to tickle their fancy. And they put together a golden calf and they worshipped it and said, I don't know where that Moses guy is, but look at this calf that we got. Rejected God in His face. Spit in His face. It would be like getting down on your knee to propose and the one that you love turning to you and spitting in your face. That's what Israel did to God in Exodus 33 and 34. And what does God say? 
How does he reveal himself to that wayward people? Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yes, he will judge. But to those who turn, those who turn from their sin and return to the Lord, he abounds with steadfast love and mercy. As we sang, his mercy is more. There's more mercy in him than there is sin in us. His grace is deeper than our rebellion. We cannot exhaust God's love or outsend his mercy. If we will hear his call to return to the Lord, he pursues us to repentance. And Joel's message in chapter 1 through 2 is to the people of God. So, lest we be too comfortable sitting here thinking we've trusted in the Lord, that God comes to his people and he says, Are you comfortable and convenient? and comfortable with the sin in your life? Hear God's call to repentance. But also, he says to all nations, all people everywhere, God's day of judgment is coming. And we can either bend the knee to Him now in faith, or bend the knee to Him on that final day, receiving the judgment that we deserve. God's pursuing us, calling us to repentance. Not only does God have your attention, but does God have all of you? Have you rendered your heart? Does He have your undivided devotion? Do you know that He alone, as it says in verse 27 of chapter 2, that He alone is God and there is none else? And finally, we see that God provides for our salvation. You see, the, the, the salvation that He promises, this outpouring of the Spirit that's to come, God is the one who will do it. If you, if you look through verses 18 through uh, the end of, verse, of chapter 2, verse 32, just note the amount of times that it says, I will. God says, I will do this. I will do this. I will restore. I will remove your enemies. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will pour out my Spirit. I will show wonders in the heavens. God is the one bringing this salvation, this outpouring of the Spirit. This promised outpouring of the Spirit we see being fulfilled in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2. Flip over to Acts 2 real quick. See, the fulfillment of Joel 28, 28-32 is in the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection. Look with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 14-24. through 24. If you recall, you may be familiar with the story of Pentecost. After Jesus' ascended, He told His disciples to wait for the Lord to send the Spirit, and He would come with power. And, and they wait on the Lord. And at, at Pentecost, God brings people from every nation to Jerusalem. God is bringing His people back from the nations from which they've been scattered, just like He said in Joel. And He's bringing them to Pentecost, and as they're gathered there, the Spirit falls upon those disciples, the twelve and and the hundred and twenty that were gathered in the upper room, and people thought they were out of their minds. And Peter says, we're not drunk, it's only 9 a.m. 
Hopefully they wouldn't have been drunk at 9 p.m. either. But he says, we're not drunk. This is what the prophet Joel said in verse 14 or verse 16. It says, and in the last days, he quotes from Joel 2, uh, 28 through 32 and verses 17 through 21. The Spirit coming, the outpouring of the Spirit that God promised in Joel is what takes place at Pentecost. And it takes place as a result of the work of Jesus when He says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs God did through Him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised Him loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, the salvation that God promised is is coming ultimately through the work of Jesus, but it's displayed in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we know that this is particularly through the work of Jesus because flip to Romans 10. Romans 10 verses 9-17 tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, where? In Joel chapter 2. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew or Greek, for the same is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul goes on to say, how will they call upon Him ultimately? unless somebody preaches to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when a person trusts in Jesus, they receive the promised Spirit of Joel chapter 2 and have the hope of God's presence indwelling within them. Jesus bears God's judgment in our place. And through faith in Him, we get to enjoy the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Jesus bears God's judgment, the judgment that we deserved in our place, so that through faith in Him, we might enjoy the blessing of God's presence through His Spirit who dwells within us. The hope of God's presence promised in Joel 2 is fulfilled in Jesus and comes to us when we trust in Him. And as I reflect on on just the, the reality of living in light of God's presence, I think there are, there are four things that we can take away from it of what it means to live in light of the hope of God's presence. Reflect on these as our band comes and we get ready to, to close our time. The hope of God's presence deepens our enjoyment of God. You might be familiar with Psalm 16.11. It says, For in your presence... There is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That's that's what Joel is saying to us, that God's presence is what we most desperately need. What God intended in the beginning and what God will do in the end, He has done through Jesus. And all who call upon Him get to enjoy His presence. So as you reflect on God's presence being in us, if you've trusted in Jesus, it's the, the hope of His presence that deepens our enjoyment of God. It's the hope of His presence that strengthens our fight with sin. Here's an image for you. When you're tempted to sin, imagine yourself in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And there in the Holy of Holies before the Ark of the Covenant, before God's presence Himself, imagine yourself carrying out 
your sin. Just like a child tries to hide from their parents when they sin. God's presence with us through His Spirit reminds us that we're in God's presence. Flee sin and run to Him. Return to Him. And the hope of God's presence motivates our witness. If God desires to be with His people, but sin separates them from Him, like Paul says in Romans 10, how will they know, how will they hear unless someone preaches to them? Friends, we must not be ashamed. We must not shy away from sharing the hope of God's presence that comes when a person calls on the name of the Lord. And finally, this leads us to the conclusion that the hope of God's presence invites us to Himself. You see, to say that God desires to be with His people is to say that the greatest gift God could give us is Himself. Sometimes we seek all of God's gifts and His blessings. But the primary gift, the primary blessing is being with God. I just call it to your mind if you're a believer today. Thank God that He's pursued you to repentance and that you enjoy His presence. Let it encourage you. Let it deepen your delight in God. Let it motivate you in your fight with sin. Let it propel you and motivate you to make Him known. But if you're in this room or you're watching online and you don't know Him, you haven't beckoned that invitation to call on the name of the Lord. God's invitation is to you. Turn from your sin and trust in Him. He bore your judgment in your place. And He desires to be with you. There is a refuge. The day of the Lord is coming. Judgment is coming, God says. But there is a refuge. A refuge in Christ for all who will call upon Him. I invite you today to call on Him as your Savior. And I invite all of us who have called on Him to enjoy His presence and to make it known. Let's pray.